As you know, we're in a a new series of sermons entitled Tough Questions That Jesus Asks. And it's based on the 307 questions that uh, Jesus asked in the gospel. Now this series will not go on for 307 weeks, I can promise you. But uh, we're going to look at some of the the more important ones or some of, they're all important, but As Clay always does, he recommends a book for us to read uh, as he preaches a series. And the book he recommends for this is a book entitled Jesus the Question by Martin Copenhagen. And you can get that book uh, in the bookstore. Uh, If they don't have it uh, available, they can order it for you in a day or so. Uh, But that book also contains in the index all 307 questions that Jesus asked in the Bible. And it also, the chapters focus upon certain themes, putting some of the questions together and saying, what is the theme or the focus of those questions? And as always, when Clay gives us a book and we're gonna discuss it in staff, uh, the first week he, he asks us, which question challenges you personally the most in your life and, and as staff members in our work in the church? And for me, that uh, was very easy to, to choose. In fact, that's why I was glad that uh, he asked me to preach this morning, because I already knew which question I would want to preach on in this series. And the question that Jesus asked in many different ways in different places in the scripture, uh, and the one that continues to challenge me throughout my life and more and more as I get older, is simply the question, what do you want? What do you really want? Martin Copenhaver, the author of the book, points out that Jesus is the ultimate, is not the ultimate answer man, but you might call Jesus the ultimate question man. Unlike so many churches and preachers and others today who give you quick and easy and simple answers or sayings to deal with all of life's problems, Jesus didn't do that. The approach Jesus took was to to ask us questions about life to, uh, to get us to think, to get us to ponder, not just to give us a quick and easy answer. When you give somebody a, a quick and easy and simple answer, it really isn't effective as it is if you challenge them and get them thinking about the situation. And of the 307 questions, that Jesus asks in the gospels, he only answers three of them. Or one other person said he answers eight of them, but out of 307, that's not many answers. So obviously Jesus wants to get us thinking just like he does when he tells his parables to cause us to think about what he is saying. So why does he ask all these questions? He asks them, like I said, to get us thinking. He doesn't want to do our thinking for us. Jesus wants us to reflect, to think about, to find new answers, to pause and ponder the greater meaning and purpose and the ultimate end of this life that we now live. As somebody said, Jesus is the question to all of our answers. And the questions that Jesus asks 
are hard questions that really get you thinking. The ancient Greek philosopher Socrates was a great teacher, and the way that Socrates taught, now called the Socratic method, was to ask questions. Also, in ancient Judaism, the rabbis taught by asking questions. In fact, there's an old Jewish joke about the rabbis always asking questions. It says, why does a Jew always answer a question with a question? And the answer is, well, why shouldn't a Jew always answer a question with a question? If you think about it, asking questions is one of the greatest ways to challenge people to think. And when people think, they learn more and they deepen their convictions. And that's one of the greatest ways to get people to, to change their lives according to what they discover is most important. So the goal is not just to, to provide knowledge, but the goal is really to stimulate understanding in the listener. The goal is not information, the goal is transformation, to change our lives. Jesus has always wanted to change people's lives for the better. No matter where you are, all of us can find a better life. And so Jesus continues to challenge each of you with that same thing today. So in the rabbinic tradition, he asks a lot of questions. And to me, no question that Jesus asked, and like I said, he asked this again and again in many different settings and in many different ways, no question to me is more challenging, more stimulating uh, than when he asks, what do you want? What do you really want? In other words, he's asking, what is your aim? What is your goal? What is your meaning and your purpose in life? What are you after in the way that you live and the, and the choices that you make? And you know, the longer I live and the older I get, the more challenging that question becomes to me. I say that because we all give different answers to that question at different ages and different stages in life. Now, when we're young, what we want, if we were to say, what do you really want? When we're young, what we want is to graduate from high school and college and then get a degree or some kind of training that will help us get a job or start a career that will provide us a decent living. And then once we've got that, what do we want then? We want to do well, to move ahead, to advance, to succeed in whatever our job or career might be. And then somewhere along the line, most of us want to, to get married and to have children. When we have children, what we want is to be able to uh, help them grow up with the right values to educate our children and watch them get older, hopefully someday watch them get married. And, and then some of us hope that they'll provide grandchildren for us someday. Along the way in life, what do we want? We may want to travel. We may want to see the world. We want to enjoy good health, that's for sure. And eventually, somewhere along the line, we want to retire. Bob Buford wrote a great book called Halftime, another book I'd recommend to you, in which he says, once we reach our 40s, 
or our 50s in life, our perspectives on what is important begins to change. During the first half of our lives, what we generally want is success. We pursue success in life. But then when we reach what he calls halftime, we begin to get a new look and realize that success isn't nearly as important as is significance. And by significance, he means your relationships with others, with your spouses, with your children, with your friends, with other people. He means knowing and feeling that our lives are worth something, that we are of value. Knowing that we make a contribution, hopefully, to the betterment of the world. We want to know that our lives have a meaning and a purpose. I think it's also interesting that in every major religion of the world, there are four stages in life that are pointed out that people move through. And all of us do move through these stages. I mean, you may not leave one stage entirely to move to the next one, but you do move through all the four stages in one way or another. And stage number one is what's called pleasure. From the time we are a baby in our mother's womb, we want to feel warm, we want to be comfortable, we want to feel safe and secure. We want things that feel good, look good, taste good, smell good, sound good to us. Pleasures come in many different ways. And pleasure is always a part of our desires in life, no matter how long we live. But you know, even if you get all the pleasure there is in the world, that wouldn't be enough to satisfy you with what life's all about. So then all the religions point out that we move on to a second stage, which is success. And that means to be successful in our jobs or our careers, to make enough money to let us enjoy the pleasures and luxuries of life, to be known, to have a, a, a reputation, hopefully a good reputation. This is all a part of the success stage of life. But even if we were to have all the success in the world and all the material pleasures uh, and things and possessions that the world has to offer, that still would not be enough to totally satisfy us with what life is all about. And so we move on to the third stage, which is service. Service to others, making a difference in the lives of others to help improve their life situations. We do this by feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, working for peace and justice for everybody, but you know, even if we do that, even if we dedicate all of our time, all of our energy, all of our resources to doing that, that alone will still not be enough to satisfy us with what we really want in life. Why? Because this world is not perfect. And as Jesus said, there's always gonna be the poor and there are always gonna be those who suffer, no matter how hard we work to meet their needs. And so the ultimate desire that we have in life, or the fourth stage pointed out in, in all the religions, is perfection. We want perfect joy, perfect hope, perfect peace, 
for everybody, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. Some religions refer to this as nirvana. Some call it moksha. Some call it Valhalla, the happy hunting ground. Christians call it heaven or the kingdom of God. But my point is that as we grow and learn through our years of life, our answer to the question that Jesus asked, what do you want, what do you really want, will change from stage to stage. To be honest, sometimes we respond to this question of what do we want in life, we respond with indistinct answers that are not really clear because we don't really know the answer or how we can be satisfied. It's like when you go to the refrigerator and you want something to eat and you're not sure what it is, and so you look at the leftover pizza or the salad or the cheese or the yogurt, and none of that really appeals to you as what you really want. Many people go through life looking for something to satisfy them, but they don't really know what it might be. And other people think they know what they want, but then once they get it, like a dog chasing a car, they don't know what to do with it. Or once they get what they think was their goal in life, it's not really enough, it no longer satisfies. I've always loved the story of Thomas Monahan, who was the founder of Domino's Pizza. He obviously made millions of dollars. In fact, he made a billion dollars during his working life. He had every material pleasure that the world has to offer. But Monahan had an emptiness in his soul that money and materialism could not fill. So he began selling off so many of his material possessions including three houses designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, 30 vintage automobiles, including a $13 million Bugatti. He stopped construction on his new $5 million home, which in today's money would probably be a $15 million home. He even sold his Detroit Tigers baseball team. As Monahan said, none of these things that I bought, and I mean none of them, have ever really made me happy. He discovered that the real meaning and joy in life does not come from getting, but only in giving, in doing what Jesus taught us that life is all about. Sometimes our goals and our desires in life, the things we think that we want, are not really big enough. I remember back when I was 22 years old and a student at Vanderbilt Divinity School, a good friend and I in school with me, we would talk about what our ambitions were for the future. And uh, we both agreed that uh, our ultimate goal would be to be a minister of a, of a large church as at age 22. At age 25, I found myself as minister of a large church. And I remember thinking, wow, now what's my goal now? Sometimes our goals aren't big enough. We don't think big enough or don't look ahead far enough. This is why Jesus challenges us with his questions to think things through and to think things through not just for today, but also for tomorrow, for the future, the long run, including eternity One of the things that I really liked about this book 
Jesus is the question, <clears throat> is that the author describes a situation that I have always felt, but I'd never heard anybody else ever describe it before. But Christmas is my favorite time of the year, no doubt about it. I love all the colors and the lights and the decorations and the songs and the special events and the music and the goodwill that we feel at Christmas time, more so maybe than any other time of the year. Lately, our family has been enjoying looking at some old video tip, tapes that include Christmases when uh, my children were growing up, when they were little. Uh, my son John discovered how he can transform these old videotapes and put them into where we can watch them on the computer or add it, watch it on television. And I want you to know that when Clay was 12 years old, he had a beautiful soprano singing voice. And if you want, I'll show you the tape where he sings Oh Holy Night uh, on Christmas Eve. But as much as I have always enjoyed, loved Christmas, I have also always felt that beneath the surface, there's some of all the celebration, there's still some kind of, of nostalgia or, or longing for something, or even what I call sadness. I used to think it was a nostalgia for Christmas's past, remembering when your children were little and growing up, or when loved ones were there for Christmas who are no longer in the world today. But then a few years ago, I realized that it's not so much nostalgia for the past, but it's sort of a, a homesickness or a longing for something that has yet to come. It's a longing for our real and ultimate home, which is with God, when we shall be with those loved ones once again who are gone from this life. It's a longing for that perfect love, that perfect joy, that perfect peace, that, that perfect hope, stage four. In other words, <clears throat> it's a longing for heaven, the ultimate stage of life. It reminds me of the words of St. Augustine, who said once famously, Thou hast created us in such a way, O God, that our hearts are restless till they find their peace with you. And I think to myself, how true, how true. In answering Jesus' question, what do you want? We often respond with things that don't really satisfy. As Martin Copenhaver says so beautifully in this book, there is an empty place in our hearts, an empty hole in our souls, which only God can fill. We try to fill that space with other things, human relationships, careers, or other earthly pursuits, but they will sooner or later leave us unsatisfied. After all, if that empty space implanted in our soul is in the shape of God, then our attempts to fill it with anything else will leave empty corners that will ache. And that's the very reason why when I conduct a funeral service, when people are facing the death of a loved one, when they're facing the question of where are they now? Where have they gone? What is life all about? What is its ultimate destiny or destination? I always like to say, I hope 
that we can live our lives in this world in such a way that we will lift our eyes above the shadows of this earth and see life in light of eternity. And that's especially true when the shadows of this earth become so dark and difficult. Jesus asks, what do you want? What do you really want? And sooner or later, we will discover that what we really want is perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect hope for ourselves and for everybody else. What we really want is God. And the sooner we realize this and choose to do the things that will that are necessary in order to find that, to know God, the closer we will come to it. So what do you want? <laughs>